used to kid my deacons when I pastored that the only reason they never fired me was they didn't want to disappoint my wife. She was my secret weapon. I'd like to uh, just take a few moments. I'm not sure what we have up top there, but uh, uh, just to share a few minutes about what we've been doing and what we feel God is calling us to do. Sharon and I have been missionaries for 43 years. Uh, before that, we were pastors in the ministry. Uh, very soon, I'll be celebrating uh, almost uh, 50 years in the ministry. But uh, the Lord uh, gave us, in the, over the last 30 years, opportunities to see a a certain phenomena develop in the area of missions ministry. Uh, David Lee, that you may have already heard minister here, a very close friend of, of uh, the pastor, a register, is a very good friend of mine as well. And, and uh, we had the privilege of, of working in and uh, developing uh, an international church. International churches are, are, are coming to the fore as being one of the most important strategic ministries around the world because... The world is globalized. People are moving as never before, taking jobs, going to school, diplomatic corps, military, refugees. The world is in chaos today. Millions of people are on the move all over the world. And one of the things many of them hold in common, uh, and even are not necessarily in common, is the English language. And they are thrust into an alien, unknown environment. And because of that, they're searching, they're find, trying to find a connecting point. They're probably more open to spiritual things because they are in a bit of a crisis. And someone showing them uh, the love of Christ, someone inviting them to their home, someone inviting them to come and worship in an atmosphere where there's uh, maybe one of the languages they speak, in this case English, uh, is, is a way of, of reaching a lot of these people that would never be reached in their own country. Uh, one of the things that, uh, to illustrate how in, incredible it can become to touch people, we, in Brussels, as you know, is the capital of Europe. Uh, every, it's the only country, Belgium is the only country in the world where the United States has three ambassadors. Uh, we have an ambassador to the United Nations, to the uh, European community, we have an ambassador to NATO, and we have an ambassador to the country of Belgium. If that gives you an indication how important Belgium is in the strategies uh, world politics and, uh, and so forth. But uh, our Nigerian, mission, uh, Nigerian ambassador passed away uh, last year when I was pastoring before I left, and uh, the embassy called me and said, would you be willing to hold his funeral at Christian Center where he's, uh, he's been attending as he's been on duty for his nation in our country? We had a number of ambassadors in our, in our, in our, in our congregation, and and, uh, and I said, wow, I've never done this before. You know what I'm saying? You're just completely uh, taken over because it takes a lot to put one of these kind of funerals together. And I happened to have the chief of protocol of the Botswana Embassy in my church. And I called Doreen up. I said, Doreen, they've asked us to hold uh, the funeral for uh, the Ambassador Albavor from Nigeria in our church uh, to honor his, his wife's wishes and the family's wishes. But uh, I've never done this. It took us a week, over a week of back and forth, faxes and, uh, and the telephone communication to work this whole thing up. And I uh, was able to minister the gospel to 51 ambassadors and 12 ambassadors' wives, who among them were Hindus and Buddhists and uh, communists and Muslim Islamists. 
they were all sitting there in our church, and they, we were able to preach a message on the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So God gave us a chance, maybe for the only time in some of these people's lives, to plant the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the hearts of these people. So international churches are growing. We have over 100 churches uh, around the world that are functioning in the largest cities, four or 5,000 people, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Beijing, Brussels, Vin, uh, uh, Vienna, Austria, Rome, Italy. They're all over, and, and they're, they're just starting to take root in a lot of places. Countries are asking for help in developing Brazil, uh, these type of churches. So as we've come home after finishing 43 years overseas, uh, have, they've called us and asked us to help to find and connect with young couples, younger people, and I say younger, that's easier for me because I'm probably the old, one of the older people in this church, but to find younger, vibrant people with a call and a passion to plant these international churches. Our goal is to plant 100 new churches in major cities around the world. And uh, God is already touching people. We've already seen one of our families placed just recently uh, in the Netherlands, and we just ask you to pray with us. I don't have time. I want to get into the Word this morning, but I just ask you to pray for Momentum. That's the title of our organization. Uh, it's with the Assemblies of God. Uh, Sherry has some of the uh, little cards that you can take one and remember us by. There's also a website. It's MomentumAGWM.org if you'd like to take a look at what's going on there. But just pray for us as we travel, as we connect with pastors. I have people calling from North Carolina, from Wisconsin. Some people are feeling called not to spend a lifetime doing this, but some of these men are saying, I'm willing to give several years, couples that are willing to share and so forth, uh, and to go abroad and help us. I had a pastor the other day, I was speaking up in Somersville, West Virginia, uh, and uh, he said to me, so we have teams Richard, that we could send all over the world. We're willing to work with you. We're willing to to send short-term teams to do evangelism and children's camps. So there's a lot of different ways we can support and help underwrite this type of a ministry. So pray for international church development. Pray for momentum. And I pray especially for Sherry and I that God would help us to to do the work that he's called us to do. Uh, Some of the most powerful moments of my life were spent in Brussels uh, ministering to uh, not only the international congregation, but also to help raise up a whole new movement in the southern part of our nation. 35% of Belgium is French-speaking. We started prayer initiatives through our associate pastors, fluent in five languages, and we've seen thousands and thousands of people touched through the outreaches of of, uh, Hope for Wallonia. We have a ministry to the trafficked women from around the world in the large port city of Antwerp and in Brussels. We have halfway houses, the destiny home. All of these things are paid for through international people who have the means. We, i got to tell you something. If God's blessed you as an American with some finances, we had men in our church who, who brought in $500,000 a year in salary. To see those kind of people pour their funding into the needs of, of people, the homeless or the prostitutes or, or the, the people that are uh, – need a help financially to, to, to organize an evangelistic thrust in their country or in their community to support missions efforts around the world. Uh, that church became an engine to do that very thing, to help plant new churches. So uh, it was a joy for me to spend those years, to see people saved, to see Muslims. We baptized 24 Muslim men and women in the last 18 months of our service there uh, from, uh, from, that were being touched. And believe it or not, we actually have home groups for Arab 
uh, for Muslims that are converted in the very neighborhood where Molenbeek is, where they plan the jihadist attacks in Paris and in Brussels at the metro station. Our, our pastor of music was actually checking in when the bomb went off. He was thankfully not injured seriously. But uh, we know what the impact of terrorism is, but we also know this. We know the impact of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that God has called us, as this pastor who had been tortured for three years from Iran said, he said, if we don't take the gospel to the Muslim, the Muslim will bring jihad to America. We need today as Christians to once again become bold in our declaration of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to make new commitments, fresh and new commitments to evangelize and to support those who are evangelizing. I'm so proud today to be a part of a movement that's still growing. Nationally, we are one of the few movements in America that are still growing. Uh, we grew by 1.4%. Some churches lost over 200,000 people in the last year in, in their churches. And I'm just asking God to help us to continue to grow overseas. One of the main pillars of the Assemblies of God was to plant uh, the gospel in countries around the world. And today, over 68 million people around the world are attending churches that carry uh, the gospel and are evangelistic in nature. So I'm thankful to be a part of a living, vibrant organization that's, that believes that God wants the whole world to hear the gospel. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalms 126. I'd like to read a very brief passage, verses 5 and 6. Psalm 126 verses 5 and 6. And the title of my message this morning is A Passion to Sow and a Joy in Harvest. A Passion to Sow and a Joy in Harvest. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. There's a very clear principle that if you want to harvest something, you have to plant it. How many know that? A lot of us have to understand that sowing is something that causes a lot of pain sometimes and tears and even sunburn and sweat in this part of the country. I can tell you I'd love to plant a, a nice little vegetable garden in the Appalachian Mountains this summer, but not in central Florida where I live in Lakeland, Florida. But the fact is this, nothing is harvested that hasn't been sweated over and prayed over and cried over. I remember when I was in Africa one time that we were at the very end of the growing season of our millet, which was the main product, and I lived on the outskirts of town, and there were fields not far from where I lived, and I'll never forget as I saw a massive storm cloud begin to appear on the horizon. And I began to say, oh, my goodness, Lord, don't let that storm come right now, because if it does, the winds and the rain will beat the millet down, and our people will starve. I spent part of my early mission career uh, helping with humanitarian ministries to the famine-stricken in West Africa, the lepers. I know what it is to live with people and see people die for lack of 80 cents worth of medicine. And 50% uh, of our children dying before the age of five years old. So my wife and I were shocked into reality of what it really means to live in a world where people live on sometimes less than a dollar a day, even much less than a dollar a day. But as I was watching that storm cloud come over our town, I remember so well seeing the women as they would go screaming out into the fields. 
And I didn't understand why they were doing that. And they weren't Christians. These women were pagan. They were unbelievers. But they were crying out. They were crying out. And I asked our, our, one of the guys on, in our area, I said, guys, why are these women running through the fields? And are they crying out like that? He says, because they are praying. They're asking the spirits to protect their crops because they know that if that storm comes and it falls upon these crops, that their children will go hungry and possibly die. And I just remember taking a moment right there and thinking, oh, God, as we see a harvest preparing out there and we see the storm clouds coming, and Satan's efforts who would love to destroy the work of God. How we as Christians, and I'm so impressed this morning, Pastor, that your people are taking prayer so seriously. Friends, I can tell you what, prayer is a key to the victory that Jesus Christ wants you and I to experience in our lives, but in also in the work of the ministry around the world today. So continue praying. God wants you to pray. I was, I was, I'm, I'm basing this sermon on, a, on an experience that I had. I was in the, uh, I was sitting in my office, which by the way is a very tiny office since you, you, you uh, don't have a big office anymore. I had a really nice office when I pastored, and I think every pastor needs a nice office, but I, now as a home in the States, I have an office in my bedroom, which isn't real impressive, but it serves the purpose. And uh, my grandson came in the other day. He's eight years old. He lives next door to us. And he said, Grandpa, he says, you got a very messy office. I says, it's because I don't have enough room for everything I need. He says, well, you need to work on this. I mean, he's only eight years old, and he's telling me how to run my office. I would hate to think what's going to happen when he becomes 15. So anyway, I'm sitting there, and I got this text, this email in from, the, from headquarters from, the United, from Springfield. It says, there's going to be a live-streamed uh, funeral for Jim Bai on the Internet. And I'm thinking, okay, why would they send that to me? But, you know, I thought, well, he was a missionary. He was 53 years old, died of a massive heart attack at the Nebraska Heart Institute. And I'd heard about him a little bit, but not much. I said, well, I'll just flip it on while I'm working. Well, as I was sitting there and began to, to listen to the different people who spoke, including his four daughters, teenage and adult daughters, and, and their, their mother. I, I was so impressed. And then the people that did speak were people of national prominence. And I'm saying, who is this guy? What is it about him that has brought a lot of people together in, in Christchurch in Lincoln, Nebraska? And then I began to listen to this man's life. He was 53, but had already spent 30 years of his life doing missionary work. He worked for uh, the Book of Hope. Maybe some of you have heard of the Book of Hope that has distributed about a billion books, booklets around the world in 600 languages to children. And he was over all of Africa. And this man alone in his ministry and his passion for the lost uh, would disappear in the bush and he would, he would go out for as many as six weeks and people didn't even know where he was as he moved from country to country, crossing borders uh, clandestinely, not even know people knowing where he was as he was trying to organize and plant churches, as he was trying to organize opportunities for children in every school to be able to receive this booklet, which is the, it's the narrative of the life of Christ that's based on the four Gospels of, of, uh, of the Bible. And he was working so hard, he had already seen 42 million of these books uh, distributed, and he was working his last project. He walked into the office of the, of the Book of Hope uh, director, and he said, you know, God's given me a vision. This was a year and a half ago. And he said, what's your vision, Jim? He said, my vision, he said, is to touch 22 million kids in the nine Muslim countries of West and Central Africa, and he said to plant 3,500 churches. 
the guy says, the director says, he says, could you have a little bit more, a little, little less excitement about this? He said, where in the world are we going to get the money to do this kind of project? He said, I don't know. But he says, God showed me. He said, that's what I'm working toward. Jim died before he saw the fulfillment of that. He died young. He died leaving a great family. He died leaving behind thousands of thousands upon thousands of people who, who know Jesus Christ today. And many tens of thousands, if not millions, who will go on to know Jesus Christ because he has left a legacy and he has left a passion for the lost. I've asked myself, what kind of a legacy am I going to leave? It's not how long we live, people. It's how well we live. Do people see something in us that they will want to emulate long after we're gone? Our children, our grandchildren. So the more I thought about this guy, and the more I I just kind of got away from what I was doing, and I just glued my eyes and my heart to what was being said here, and I was trying to figure out and glean from this sermon and from this from this presentation, what were the things that made Jim a great, passionate missionary who was going out and reaching so many people with the gospel and leaving an incredible legacy? And there were four things I came up with. And I believe these four things undergird the success of any one of our lives to do the work of Jesus Christ. It's not just for Jim By. It is something that's, for me, these are principles that you and I need to grab real quickly, and we need to say, measure our life by these four things. And I think if we will measure our lives by these four things, we will see that we will begin moving closer and closer to fulfilling God's great commission in our community, in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Number one, he had a true encounter with Jesus Christ. I believe with all of my heart that if you really love Jesus, just like you really love your wife or your husband or your kids, you're going to talk about him. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he is going to be at the very top of everything, the most important person in your entire life. It's not something that is just left for people who get a call overseas. You see, it's not crossing the sea. It's seeing the cross that makes the difference in a person's life. He loved Jesus. There was no subject There was no subject that didn't somehow find its way back to his his love for Christ. Politics, family, whatever it was, he understood that the real life that we live is, is in that experience of serving and walking with Christ. You see, we are literally, as Christians today, to let our lives be filtered through the eyes of Jesus, through the heart of Jesus, through the hands of Jesus, through the feet of Jesus, through the ears of Jesus, through the thoughts of Jesus, that we are truly walking and living examples of what Jesus would want us to be upon the earth. Those are the kind of people that will touch their neighbors. Those are the kind of people that will see things change for the good in their communities. The second thing that I believe that made him uh, 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 an effective Christian was he believed in the Word more than he believed in the world. 
Now, I'm going to tell you what I started doing years ago, several years ago. I quit getting up and watching CNN or Fox News or reading the newspaper or checking the, the Internet links to all of the bad news in the world. That did not become the priority of my morning. My morning was, I'm going to see what God says and how God wants me to look at this day, and then I'll maybe get around to looking at the world, and then I'm going to apply the Word to the world. You see, that's how we're to, we're to live that way. Let me, just, let me just tell you, let me read to you. This is, this is where we are. This is where we really are in, the, in our communities today. It's found in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 is one of those passages that always speaks to me because of a pastor that we had years ago in, in Brussels, Belgium. And this was, his, this was his main scripture. And this, let me read it to you. You've heard this many times. But this is what you and I have to be careful about. Because if we are not living in the Word, if we're not measuring our lives in the Word, then we're going to measure our lives with the world. This is what, this is what John says in chapter 2 of 1 John, verses 15 through 16. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boastfulness of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. If we would do a self-evaluation today, asking ourselves, Lord, am I lusting after that lady over there? Am I coveting that man's property? Am I willing to lie to get ahead in this world? Is there something going on in my spirit that is driving me further and further away from the Lord? We need to, need to check ourselves. The Bible says this. I love this scripture. So simple. The principle is so simple. And so many times we're not doing it. He says, if you judge yourself, you won't be judged. You see, if we deal with who we are through the power of the, and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, it will be easy to stand before God one of these days. We won't all be afraid. Oh, my God, if it's all revealed. Oh, let's just get it all out there and let Jesus' blood cover it today so we can walk in peace and have the joy of the Lord, which is our joy in Him alone. Number three, faith trumped feelings. Faith trumped feelings. I have never lived in a period, and I'm only a young man at 68, when everything's about feelings. Feelings. All feelings. I mean, if we don't feel it, we don't do it. And then they, they, they have people say, if you feel it, do it. Even if it's going to mess up your life and everybody else's life in the process. You see, feelings are deceptive. Satan uses feelings. When Jesus was in the desert and being tempted after 40 days, let me just tell you about Satan. He's a dirty fighter. He waited until after Jesus had been there for 40 days. And then he says, oh, Jesus, I've got a couple suggestions for you. You know what? You're hungry, right? Yeah. You're hungry. You've got feelings. Your little belly's hurting, isn't it? Yes. Okay, then make this turn those, you're God. You turn those stones into bread, you'll be fine. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Oh, you know, just bow down to me, just down, and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Worship the Lord thy God, and no other gods beside him. 
took him up to the temple top and says, look here, Jesus, you, you're Superman. Just dive off. He said, you're going to make an incredible impression on everybody. He says, do not tempt the Lord thy God. You see, we have got to decide what are we going to live by, our feelings, or are we going to live by the faith and our trust in what God says is true and what is faithful and that never changes. You see, the word doesn't change. Your feelings do change. But if you have the Word of God in your heart and you're living in obedience to the Word of God, friends, everything the devil throws against you will bounce right off, you see. Because greater is he that is within you than he that is within the world today. Fourthly, preparing men for eternity is the most important thing we can do with the present. I think we've lost sight of eternity, friends. There was a man, I didn't know who he was, in the year 2000, maybe some of you can remember back that far, when the world was celebrating the 2000th year, second millennium started at the International Dateline in Fiji, and it moved from there across the Asia Pacific to Australia and on. But something happened in Australia. They say that there's a huge bridge, it's a bay bridge that connects the city of Sydney. And in that, on that bridge, that night, when the hour struck for the year 2000, that a huge word was flashed up on the bridge in lights, and it said this one word, eternity. Eternity. When I began to study and look into that, the origin of that, I learned that in 1935 to 1967, there was a man who had sat in a service in a Baptist church in Sydney who had been a converted drug, alcoholic, and petty criminal. Jesus transformed his life. He heard one message on eternity. He was so impacted by that message that he decided that every night from 2 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock in the morning as everyone slept in their beds in Sydney, Australia, that he would take chalk and he would begin to write the word eternity in a beautiful copper, copper plate font on the streets of that city. People woke up to that every day for 25 or 30 years. And no one knew who he was until finally it became uh, the desire of, of, the, of the people to figure out who this person was. That every morning when they woke up, they were confronted with one word that most of them were too busy to think about, and that's eternity. His name was Arthur Malcolm Stace. It became such an important thing that the city of Sydney, Australia, has branded that word and it has become a part of their city history. Because one man began to say to the people all around him who were living for today, living for their retirement, living to have fun, living just to raise their family, that if you don't look out, you're going to miss the most important message that God says that you need to know, and that is that you need to give your heart to Jesus Christ and that he alone has the keys to death, hell, and the grave.
So this is verse 17 of 1 John. This was the verse that my pastor used to love to quote. He says this in verse 17 of 1 John 2. The world and its desires will pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. The man who does the will of God lives forever. What's so important about eternity this morning? I wrote some things down in closing. There will be no more tears in heaven in eternity. There'll be no more devil to have to fight. There'll be no more cancer or disease or troubling diagnosis and specialized medicines that are going to have to try to experiment till they find possibly a solution to prolong our life for a few more months or years. There's no more fear of death. The Bible says that death will be swallowed up in victory. And for the first time, friends, you and I will experience a peace that passes understanding. That's why eternity is so important this morning. That's why we've got to look beyond the natural into the supernatural, beyond the fleshly life, and begin to take a hold of the importance of nurturing the spiritual this body is going to die. I'm leaving after this service to drive 750 miles to participate in the funeral of the last living relative of my father's generation, his youngest brother. There are no more in that generation. My cousin Paul Jr., the son of my uncle, and I now are the elders in our family. We have become the go-to people for our children and our grandchildren. And one day, 